0: So last time, last week, I talked about uh, the story of Joseph, and I ended with a couple of ideas that I wanted to build on tonight. Uh, The main idea being that uh, right at the end of class, I said that Joseph chose, how about this, Joseph came to a place where he looked at what had happened to him through the eyes of God, as opposed to seeing his surroundings through the eyes of what had happened to him. That brings me to the idea of focus and vision. And I also said last time that our vision is driven by our perceptions. And probably the most common example of that is the question is the glass half empty or half full? So all of you see the same glass. It's probably... Well, it doesn't really matter if it's more towards empty or more towards full. But how you perceive it is going to be different from person to person. The optimists, according to the classic example, says that the glass is, well, the glass is half full. It's going in a good direction. And the pessimist doesn't look at what's there. He looks at what's not there. That says, well, the glass is half empty because it's missing part of it. So here's the question I have for you. Is it possible to change... Our perceptions to get to a better place. So we've already said that how we see the world is more important than what we actually see. So is it possible to change how we see the world? How is it that we can see? So some of you might study eyes. Up until about a thousand years ago, uh, it was kind of generally thought Mm -hmm. that the way we saw was that light, I I don't have the theory down exactly, but something to the idea of that that our eyes produce light and somehow that forms a picture in our minds. And they theorized this because when you cover your eyes with your hand, you can't see anything, which means that the light can't shine right there and make the picture. Now, they kind of had the right idea, although it doesn't really make sense, does it? So about a thousand years ago, there was an Arab, um, we'll call him a scientist, who says, no, I think we got it wrong. I actually think it's the opposite. And that the light enters into our eyes and forms the picture that way. And he was correct. Light enters our eyes, and our mind forms the image. So you can have people with fully functioning eyes who are blind. Not because their eyes don't work, but because their brain doesn't. And Elon Musk is going to help us fix some of that, hopefully, with his Neuralink project. Anyway, how is it that we can see? So here's a side diagram of the eye. A little fuzzy, but you get the idea. Okay, so here's the process of seeing. I'm going to dumb it down because it's infinitely more complex than what I can tell you just from other than understanding. But light enters the eye through the cornea, and that's this little dome-shaped thingy on the outside light enters the eye through the cornea and that light is bent and directed by the cornea. So you have the light rays that are coming in, the cornea is the first, uh, we'll call it machine on the assembly line that that light is going to touch. And the cornea, the cornea bends the light to focus it towards the back of the eye and the light passes through the cornea into the pupil. You know what your pupils are? The little black things in the middle of your eyes that go like this when, some, when the, you know when the doctor shines a light in there. So the pupil is responsible for de- turning the lights up and down, so to speak, which is why uh, it's, it's in there. That little black thing is surrounded by your iris, and the iris is what gives your eyes their color. And it, that iris acts like a muscle. And what it's doing is it's reading the, uh, the, the, uh, the brightness of the light and telling the pupil, okay, that's too bright for us to process. You need to close down a little bit. Or it's telling the pupil that there's not enough light here, so you need to widen up so they can gather in more light, which is why when you're outside at night, your pupils are, like, big. And when, you know, the sun is bright, they narrow down to really small. So what it's doing is it's trying to take what it's seeing out here and turn it into something manageable for the rest of the process. So the cornea bends the light towards the back of the eye. The pupil tones it down or turns it up based on what it thinks it needs. So the focused and adjusted adjusted light then moves back through the second dome-shaped object called the lens. And what the lens does is it adjusts its shape to further project the light toward the back of the eye. In the process, it flips the image upside down. And so now we have an upside down image that is coming back through here, through the vitreous gel, it's called and headed towards the back of the eye that is called your retina. Now the image is projected back here, hopefully onto your macula, or what's also called the focal point. So you you have everything that's coming in, trying to make, making an effort to get back to here. Now, the neat thing is that if you're nearsighted, often what happens is that something happens out here to mess up the direction of the light, and it's starting to bounce off other parts of the retina which is what happens when you get corrective surgery, like LASIK, like Lynette just had, or what I had last year, uh, what they do is, and it's really cool, they hold your eye open, and uh, essentially take a captive and put it in prison so you can't blink, and they slice off the outer part of the, I believe it's the cornea, and they lay it back, and they go in there with a laser, and they fix the things that are not working correctly, so that when the light passes through, it's going to hit back here at the macula instead of just kind of bouncing around on the retina in places it's not supposed to be, and they can fix your nearsightedness. It's also quite uncomfortable and quite worth it if you ever find yourself as a single nurse with lots of extra cash. (laughs) Sorry, I was in service when I did mine. Anyway, all right. So what happens is uh, everything in this outer process is working to focus the light towards the back of the eye. Now it's not just hitting the macula or the focal point, that image is also kind of getting spread around on the back of the retina, and on that retina, they have what's called rods and cones. It's a fairly basic term, but what those things—the job of the retina then—is to take the light rays that it collects and translate them into electrical impulses. After all that's done, the uh, optic nerve collects all the uh, all the all these light rays that are now changed into electrical impulses, and it sends them to the brain for processing. The brain then, uh, so it heads back toward the occipital lobe, which is uh, kind of at the back lower part of your brain, and it sends it back there, and what the occipital lobe does, it does is it flips the image right side up, and then simultaneously sends out signals, now this is Nate really dumbing it down because Nate isn't a scientist, It simultaneously sends out signals to different parts of your brain. One part of the brain is trying to figure out, um, I better look just to make sure. One part of the brain is trying to figure out if this is something you've seen before, so it's working on identity. The other part of the brain is, uh, or another part of the brain that's working at the same time is the one that's trying to figure out, okay, is this thing moving, and where is it going? And so you have... This process that's taking place to try to figure out what's going on, try to figure out what you're seeing. And that all takes place in about 13 milliseconds. So it's really, really, really fast, our process of identity. Here's the catch. The eye doesn't really see, does it? All the eye does is collects information gathers light impulses, it gathers light rays, and it it changes them into electrical impulses, but it doesn't really tell you anything. The eye doesn't know what's going on. The eye is only being directed by what's happening in the brain. It only gathers information. So the brain processes electrical impulses. Now there's a number of ways in which it does this, but scientists think, and this seems to make sense, Scientists think that the first thing you see is an outline when you're looking at something. Now this is all happening so fast that you're not really paying attention to what's going on. But when you're identifying things, you're not identifying, the first thing you see is not depth, it's not color, it's not anything like that. It's just kind of a black and white outline. Which is why shapes get us, squ- get us scared the fastest, like the shape of a snake, for example. You can put a rope on the ground at the right spot and everybody who walks by is going to jump. Not because they see a rope, but because they see that shape, and we have this innate fear of that shape. So you have uh, outlines of shapes being recognized first, and then the rest of the brain is trying to figure out what's going on. But here's the interesting thing. The brain forms the image. Now, I read this in a scientific paper, so it's not just Nate's idea. The brain forms the image based on past experiences. Isn't that interesting? So it sees the brain's processing the image, and it's comparing what it sees to everything else that it knows. And that is shaping what is now seen, which is why two people can look at the same thing and not actually look at the same thing, because their brain is actually telling them two different things it gets even more complicated than that. However, let's talk about focus. So if you think of the world around you in a 360 degree circle, so there's like 360 degrees of what you can see, but you can't actually see that. You only see about 120 degrees of that 360, so about a third of your world. Now, mothers generally have eyes in the back of their heads so they see a little more. But uh, if you take your arm and you hold it out at arm's length, so go ahead and do this if you can, do it without encroaching on your neighbor's personal space too much. Hold out your arm like this, intentionally encroaching on your neighbor's space. Hold (laughs) out your arm like this, look at your thumbnail. That's about how much you can focus on. That's about 1% of that 120 degree arc that you can see, which means that you miss, not only do you miss two thirds of what's going on around you, you miss 99% of what you actually look at. Or what you actually see. And Some of us miss more than that. That's not very much. Almost everything is in your periphery. Almost everything. So you focus on something and you notice that everything else becomes out of focus. You actually have blind spots in your division as well, which your brain automatically compensates for, and I have no idea if that's something God built into the system or if that's something that just changed in the last thousands of years. But anyway, really cool. Um, Focus. Focus is cognitively very expensive, not because of what it costs you to focus, but because of what it costs you to not focus on everything else. Does that make sense? So people cut their fingers off with table saws and chop saws. You know why? Because their focus was in the wrong place. People, did you know when you're driving, as a general rule, you're looking no farther ahead of you than you are when you're riding a bike? A little scary, isn't it? Because you're usually going a lot faster in a vehicle than you are when you're riding your bike. Focus is very... Expensive. We decide by choice or by impulse to focus on things to the neglect of everything else, which means that you probably miss an awful lot. The other thing that it means is that you can affect what you actually see. So we can't we can't influence what the eye takes in. Not necessarily. You can you can do it by you can you can. You can influence it by choosing what you focus on, but you can't really change what you're seeing. I'm not even sure that you can change your perceptions all that much, but you can choose focus. And the funny thing is that focus is built into our culture. You know why? Because you're all looking at me. Out of all the things you could be looking at, you're looking at the person standing in the front of the room, and hopefully you do that during church and when the song leader is leading the songs. You know how many song leaders take change the life bulb? They have no idea because nobody watches them. Same thing is true for the novel, the chorus director, for the most part. Focus is important. It changed Joseph's life for good, as we saw last week, and it ruined Cain's because of his focus. So focus matters. So is it possible to do anything about focus? Technically speaking, if you can change your focus, that changes what you have to perceive, doesn't it? It changes what your brain has the ability to take in. All right, so in order to look at that, we're going to look at the story of Elijah. So Elijah is one of my uh, favorite characters in the Old Testament. But Elijah has a problem, and we're going to look at Elijah's problem in 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Just what has Elijah done? Well, let's have a look. We're just on the tail end of three and a half years of no rain. James tells us that Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and God answered his prayer, and it did not rain for three years and six months. That's not bad for a prophet. To pull something like that off. What else has Elijah done? Well, during that drought, God miraculously provided food for Elijah, first with ravens beside the uh, brook Cherith, and then later on at a widow's house with her son, where every morning when they got up, there was enough of flour in the pot and enough of oil for a loaf of bread. Fire just fell on Mount Carmel very, very recently, probably within the last few days to a week. All of Israel has shouted, the Lord is God. They've killed anywhere from four to 850 prophets of Baal and Ashereth in the land of Israel. Elijah prays earnestly again on Mount Carmel, and it rains. And it says it was a great rain. And ahead of that rain, Elijah hauls down off the mountain and runs about 15 miles in front of Ahab's chariot all the way to the town of Jezreel, where he sits down and has a meal with the man who was just trying to kill him for the last three and a half years. Not bad for a week's work. How would you be feeling about that? So remember, we're talking about focus. Do you feel uh, you know what it's like to, to have these highs and lows in your spiritual life? So you think about the times when you're really doing well. For me, when I was your age, it was usually um, around the time of when I would go to Lancaster to help teach City Bible School for a week. And I did that for, I don't know, five years or something like that. And um, it was just a really good week of being with some really uh, spiritually connected people. And I was always doing really well after those weeks. You know why? of my focus. Other stuff didn't really have time to come in and get in the forefront and clutter my mind up and things like that. And so my focus was great. Now you put yourself in Elijah's position. Things have gone really, really, really well in the very recent past. And we don't really see the roller coaster, do we? We see him going one direction and it's not up. Back to 1 Kings. Next verse says this, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel says, "Uh, Elijah, you know, there's prophets that you just killed. You're next. Now, how do you respond if if you're Elijah? You've just faced down, essentially, the entire nation of Israel. You've killed hundreds of their prophets. And a woman sends you a message, she's not even there she sends you a message and she said I'm coming for you and Elijah rather than laughing it off rather than standing up to her rather than he runs and it says following that that Elijah oh, let's read it so he's up there in Jezreel when this happens He gets up and he travels about 100 miles south. So basically he goes out of the kingdom of Israel, down through the nation of Judah, all the way to the southern end of the nation of Judah, Judah, down to Beersheba, which is like right on the edge of the uh, Negev desert. And this is what the Bible tells us. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Someone who is weary, someone who is tired of fighting, worn out, and has no hope left and can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and says, I quit. says, I quit. And not only do I quit, um, God, if you were thinking about taking me now, might be a good time. Do you know what we call people with that attitude? Depressed. Elijah was depressed. Seriously depressed. Now, you can look at his circumstances, and here's something to think about when you're thinking about depression. Circumstances don't necessarily dictate depression, do they? They can They can influence it. But you can have people that are in really good circumstances that are struggling with depression. And our tendency might be to say, open your eyes and look at what's going on around you. How can you be so depressed? Now, some of that might be true. But what I want to look at next is I want to see how God responds to Elijah when he's not doing well. Because the problem obviously here seems to be focused, doesn't it? Of all the things that he could choose to look at that are good, where God showed himself strong on his behalf, and all of those things, Elijah's not seeing those right now. And I want to see how God treats Elijah, this prophet of his. And we want to see what Elijah does, uh, because he's not doing well. Elijah is having vision problems. What does he do when he's not doing well? He runs from the thing that's bothering him, and he isolates himself. Two bad ideas, actually, but they're also two very common ones. So he doesn't just isolate himself, he doesn't just get away from Jezebel, he takes a servant with him and they go about 100 miles, and then he leaves his servant, and he goes into one of the loneliest, most desolate places on earth, and that is the desert which is where you should go if you're not doing well, right? Let's just get away from everybody and not be around anybody anymore. And then we'll just lay down and ask God to take away our life. So Elijah goes and isolates himself in the desert. Let's look at how God walks with Elijah in his depression. So God, Elijah essentially tells God that he is done. I don't know that he really realizes he's talking to God at this point, because it says that he goes into the desert, a day's journey, however long that is, and he lays down under a broom tree, which, by the way, they don't provide that much shade. And uh, he says, doesn't say God was there with him, he just says, that's it, I'm done, I'd like to die. No more loneliness, no more miracles, no nothing, no profit, I'm done. And God comes comes to him and does this. How does God respond to Elijah's depression? Well, let's look at what he does. So interesting. He allows him to sleep and he gives him something to eat. Now, think about who Elijah is. This is, Elijah is kind of the, uh, the rough John the Baptist figure, prophet of the Old Testament. It was him against everybody else. He stood up to the king. He was the one that spoke truth at all costs. He wasn't afraid of anybody. And those are the kind of people that you and I will most often go to and say, Man up. You got it. Pick yourself up. God doesn't do that. He says, get some rest and have something to eat. So Elijah does that. He wakes up and God says, get some rest and here's something to eat. Following that, Elijah travels 40 days. The next 40 days, he spends the next 40 days wandering through the wilderness, going about 200 miles to Mount Sinai. Now this is a man who has just run 100 miles south from Jezreel to Beersheba. If if you go hiking for 40 days and you only make 200 miles, you're not doing so great, are you? Because so that's only about five miles a day. What Elijah's doing is he's wandering through the desert, coming to Mount Sinai. And you can ask yourself, it's like, okay, so what's God doing here? Like, Why doesn't God have to talk with him under the broom tree? Why does he have to take him to Mount Sinai? Or why does God even have to talk to him in the desert at all? Why doesn't he just simply uh, tell him to go back to the land of Israel and find his little cave somewhere and we'll have a chat there? It's like, no. God is doing two things. He's meeting Elijah where he's at. In other words, he's recognizing that he has needs right now that go beyond just, you need to get your act together. And God is providing for those needs. The second thing he's doing is he's going to have a talk with Elijah. But he needs to bring Elijah to a place where he's able to have a talk with God. First Kings... 19, 9 through 14. I skipped some of the verses in here, and I'm going to go ahead and read all of them for you here. Beginning to read in verse 9. Actually, I'll pick up an 8 again. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went of the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto to Horeb, the mount of God? And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? I'm actually going to read that in ESV. So There's no verses. They came to a cage and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, Now listen to this. This is Elijah now. Getting his chance to tell God how he's doing. Before it was just, I give up, kill me now. Now Elijah has had some time to think about what's actually going on. And God opens up the opportunity for him to say what he's thinking. So here are Elijah's complaints. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So Elijah comes to the cave. God says to him, what's wrong? Buddy. And Elijah basically has a little bit of an unloading session with God, and God doesn't answer him, does he? God says, okay, go out and stand on the mountain. So Elijah goes out and stands on the mountain, and we read, not in these verses here, but uh, in between these two sections, we read that God passes by in an earthquake, and in a fire, and in a wind. And it says specifically in each one of those three things, God was not in that. And after the fire, the sound of the low whisper. King James calls it a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, again, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah's been now on his own for 40 days. 40 days of silence, and now he's got something to say. He's ready to identify how he's doing. He's still feeling down. The wind, the fire, and the earthquake weren't enough. Because after all that, his needs still haven't been met. His soul needed to be fed and he needed to be understood. Two very interesting things. This is basically what he says. Actually, I won't bother writing down. He says this, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. That's his complaint. Now let's break that down just a little bit. If you look back through the story of Elijah, as he's on his way from Zarephath to Mount Carmel, this is like all happening, you know, like six weeks before this time, something like that. As he's on his way from Zarephath to Carmel, he meets Obadiah and tells Obadiah to go tell Ahab that Elijah wants to speak with him. How many of you know what Elijah what Obadiah said next? Maybe with your book of first Kings? Something to the effect of, are you kidding me he's gonna kill me because whenever he tries to find you, you you're gone. One piece of information you're missing. That's right, that's exactly right. He says something else. You know what it is? Obadiah says this, haven't you heard how I've taken a hundred prophets of the Lord and hid them fifty in a cave and have been feeding them with bread and water? So Elijah, what Obadiah is saying is, if if you disappear again and I die because Ahab kills me because you weren't here, those prophets are going to die as well. So Elijah has just heard on good report that there is at least a hundred more prophets left in the land of Israel. That's not what he tells God, is it? what he's saying is either he's forgotten or he's not telling God reality, he's telling God how he's feeling and what he's feeling is there's no one else left how does God respond? so you've got your audience with God, God uh, God's listening to you you know he's here, you've got the still small voice thing going on and you tell God how you're doing This is what God says. Ready? Here's God's response. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Lehola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Now, would that be a satisfactory answer for you? So let's say you're a nursing student here, for example, and you've got a big test day tomorrow, and you're not prepared, and you're done. Like, you're seriously done with school. And you're sitting up in the nurse's you know, in your study room, and a, you know, the still small voice comes wondering in your little office there, and asks you, what's wrong? And you say, God, I got this test tomorrow that I cannot pass, and there's nobody else here to help me, and things are horrible, and my home life is falling apart. And God says, don't you have algebra 101 at 9 tomorrow morning? How is that supposed to help? Look at God's response. There's no pat on the back. There's no, oh, you poor soul. But somehow, that was enough for Elijah. Let's read on. And it shall come to pass, that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. What God's telling Elijah is that all these problems that you have, and the frustration that you have that these things aren't being made right, I'm going to take care of that for you. But you're not done yet. Now Elijah is going to go up in a chariot of fire some point down the road, probably about ten to fifteen years after this he 's got a while he 's got a while yet to stick around, and you know what his public ministry from that from this point on was pretty much over. It says that he leaves Mount Sinai and he finds elisha plowing with his yoke of oxen and he throws his mantle over him, and elisha follows him. And from that point on, it's pretty much Elisha that takes the forefront. But what about Elijah's depression? What actually changed? I can tell you what I think happened. What happened is that Elijah met God. That's what happened. And his focus changed. It wasn't that there were different things to see than there were before. It's that his encounter with God actually enabled him to look at them. And to see beyond what he was going through, or see beyond the narrow scope of what he was seeing right at that moment, to the things that he had been missing because he was neglecting them. God had been there all along, it's just that Elijah couldn't see that anymore because things were out of focus. Now, is it possible that you and I have the same problem? Now, I know this is going to sound cliche because it is. Uh, the correct response when somebody is struggling is not to say, you just need to think on the bright side. There's so much to be thankful for. If only you would you know, be willing to look at it. Like, no. God didn't do that with Elijah. But I do think it's true that when we encounter God, perspective of help the change one of the things that I've found to be helpful is when I'm stressed and um, oh let's say it's a discipleship trip that I'm trying to plan or any number of things that, that uh, are out of my control but that I'm worried about one of the things that I try to do that I've found helpful is um, remember who God is So I'll go to the book of Isaiah, for example, and in Isaiah 40, uh, which I'm going to read a verse from here in a minute, uh, God says something like this. I think it's 40, maybe it's 43. Have you not known? Have you not heard? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are like grasshoppers. And Isaiah goes through all these things where he's describing God. And what I'm doing is I'm taking my problem and I'm putting it in perspective of the God that I serve. And there actually really isn't even a comparison. And somehow I found that to be helpful. Not that I'm trying to ignore my problem. I'm just trying to see it in the right perspective. The thing about Elijah is that it took him 40 days in the desert before he came to a place where you could see that. Then what we want to do is we're going to go straight to the cave on Mount Sinai and skip the silence that it took to get there. When you think about how God walks with us, maybe maybe, okay, for, for example, the thing with perception, perspective, and focus. Maybe you're thinking, well, yes, I know that my focus isn't in the right place, but I have no idea what to do about that. If I could you any picture of God, Isaiah 40, 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Now get this. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, King James says, lead. He will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. That's how God responds. That's what he did with Elijah. And at the end of the day, Elijah didn't have all that many more answers than he did when he started. But he encountered God, and his perspective changed, and somehow that was enough. Somehow that was enough to bring Elijah to a place where he could start seeing things God's way, instead of having his focus so narrowly put on the things that weren't right that he couldn't see anything else. That's all I have. You're dismissed. Oh, God.